Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. The curtain rises on another scandal at RTE as it's revealed the state broadcaster used advertising money to cover up losses made by Toy Show, the musical. I think it reads, reads very poorly um, for uh, RTE, unfortunately. It's clear here that proper accounting procedures and proper corporate, corporate governance procedures weren't followed. It's been called a once-in-a-generation opportunity. We debate if possession of drugs should be met with a health response as opposed to a criminal one. We know that drugs are in existence in every town, village and city right across this country. And anyone who says it's not there is just not in the real world. And as fighting continues to rage in the southern Gazan city of Khan Yunus, we go live to the West Bank and to Gaza for the very latest. A significant lapse in oversight is how the chair of the RTE board, Shuni Rahali, described the state broadcaster's management of the toy show musical. A new report published today from Grant Thornton has revealed how €75,000 worth of funds were transferred from TV advertising money to sponsorship for the musical in order to plug losses. It also details how approval for the venture was never sought from the RTE board, despite it being required to do so. We're here to discuss this further. It's Fianna Foyle TD and Media Committee member, Christopher O'Sullivan. Sinn Féin TD and Chair of the Public Accounts Committee, Brian Stanley. Former CEO of the HSC, Paul Reid. And from the Business Post, Sarah McGuinness. We're all very, uh, we're all very welcome to the programme. Sarah, I'm going to uh, come to you first. It does make incredibly interesting reading this report. It's quite difficult reading at times, I must say, because all of the names are redacted. But one thing that struck me from this report is you might get a sense that this venture was somehow rushed and that's why there were such colossal mistakes made. But this was a concept that was evolved and planned really over a two-year period. There was plenty of opportunity for the board to get involved. Absolutely. And to be honest, it's not only that it was rushed, it was seemingly doomed from the start. And what's actually really interesting, Grant Thornton lay out about five or six reasons as to why this venture was never going to work. Um, most notably, that Christmas time is already a very busy period. There are already pantos in every city and town across the country that, you know, people kind of have loyalty to. And also, it's just so completely not in RTE's wheelhouse. Um, these types of ventures are very high risk and you need a lot of money to kind of front them to get them over the line. It was really interesting, one source who was unnamed, so we unfortunately don't know who they are. Um, they said, like, as soon as I heard about this project, and we don't know when that was, the first thing I said was nine out of 10 of these um, types of ventures fail. They don't break even. 
um, which is just hilarious that people are now saying, you know, like, I didn't know so much, but I just knew that it wasn't going to work. Um, so from the get-go, it was a terrible idea. Shuni Rahalig was on a News at One today, and she kind of mentioned briefly that there was a meeting in February of 2020 where this was kind of first proposed. The works really started in early 2021 and then right through to 2022. But it kept going into 2023. February of 2023, one thing that really made headlines today was this kind of sponsorship figure and um, Orti declaring that they had um, raised... 120,000 euro in sponsorship in February of 2023. And then it came out in July that that actually wasn't true. They only had 45,000 euro in sponsorship. And that 70,000, 75,000 euro gap had to be plugged from RTE direct revenue. So I don't think, of course, now the RTE board, including Shun um, Niralig, are a lot of them weren't around at the time of this project, but there were still right up to 2023, there was still problems with it and there was seemingly efforts to kind of conceal what a disaster this had been. Um, There are risks identified and there were risks identified, nine risks associated with this venture. There was also talk in February 21 and again in March 2022. You can see it from an email that somebody sends where they talk about needing to bring this to the board given the sums of money involved for approval. There's another set of minutes from an executive board meeting where they talk about the need to bring this to the audit and risk committee. So there was an awareness (coughs) that there was a requirement to bring this project, given the funds involved, to the audit and risk committee and to the board and neither of those things happened. Does it get to why that decision or that failing uh, occurred? It's not entirely clear. The only thing that really has been pinpointed is this kind of culture of non-transparency, for lack of better word, in RTE. And a distinct lack of interrogation. Oh, of course. Now, it is worth noting that for for those at home, it might be a bit confusing. So I didn't even realise that there were two boards in RTE until this payment scandal broke. So it's the executive board, which is the likes of Kevin Backhurst, those who are kind of in there day to day, the ones that we would know really who um, make the top level decisions. And then there is the independent board, um, kind of an oversight board. And they are, you know, people who are familiar with RTE, but ultimately independent of the organisation. Um, and journalists, well, there are, Robert um, Short was a couple, was a journalist in RTE who was on that board. But they are two separate entities and just there seemed to be no communication. And that was nearly the first thing that Shuni Rahalik said today. She basically said, we didn't, she wasn't there at the time, but the board, the oversight board at the time did not ask enough questions. They didn't interrogate. There was actually, while some interviewees kind of said, we didn't know nothing, we were barely told anything. Um, There were other members of the board who said, were aware of this project prior to contracts being signed, who again, don't seem to have sought any sort of a risk assessment. Of course, yes. There was the the hundreds of thousands of euros spent on the convention centre contract where the shows were being held. And ultimately, even though they knew that they hadn't voted on this and agreed to allow this to go ahead, they still didn't raise an issue with that. So both sides are at fault. Um, but it really is just 
astounding. Like, you know, and it's nearly a good thing. Brian might be able to speak to this better, um, more clearly, but it's my understanding that these reports were delayed. But it's nearly a good thing that these didn't come out in the summer because there's just so much to pour over, which really speak to the kind of culture financially and in governance that was taking place in RTE prior to this payment scandal. And the lack thereof. Paul Reid, I know you don't want to talk about accountability and individuals, but in terms of just corporate governance here or the complete lack of corporate governance. Does it shock you? Yeah, it does. I mean, as it's reported today, and I know Neve Brennan will finalise her report on governance and risk, but if you look at the basic principles of governance and risk for any organisation, large or small, it does seem a complete absence uh, of all of them. So, for example, at a board level, there should be absolute clarity around the roles and responsibilities of the board, the delegated responsibilities to the CEO and the executive team, at uh, what sanction levels come to the board for spend levels. And indeed, a whole risk framework. What's the tolerance or risk appetite at the board level? Has it been tested? Has it been defined? You know, what tolerance level do they have for what levels of risk that might emerge? The Audit and Risk Committee, what role they play in terms of assessing uh, major initiatives, major spend initiatives before they go to the board for approval. Uh, and even an internal audit function would be expected to you know, assess various projects initiatives, you know, at the request of the board or indeed at the request of the executive. So a whole of what's, I know sometimes these can be turgid terms, governance and risk, but they're basic tenets of a control framework within an organisation. And we've seen why they're important. And actually, I think when you go through this report, you can see that some of those basic processes and some of those definitions of what roles there, they did exist. I think the Audit and Risk Committee knew what its role was, but it doesn't seem to have been involved and the question then has to go, then how is that culture created in a workplace where there seems to be this sort of sense of complacency around spend and the success or failure of projects? Yeah, and it does, it goes beyond just obviously frameworks of governance and risk. It is cultural issues, and I know that's another review that emerges in it. But when control uh, frameworks break down, uh, it actually goes through the whole organisation. You know, it, it it's... It kind of demonstrates what's important or what's not important. Uh, so when they break down, uh, behaviours change and people don't take the same things uh, to the board level, to the executive level, and they carry on with best intentions, I'm sure, many times. But frameworks break down, culture breaks down as well. Is this common, do you think, in organisations where they are you know, not necessarily beholden to shareholders, where they're dealing with public money as opposed to private money? You have experience of that. Yeah, I, look, I've worked in a lot of public organisations, local authorities, setting up a local authority and the, the HSE, which is a €22 billion euro budget. But, you know, I can say for very clearly, uh, the, a new board was appointed in 2019 to the HSE. In the absence, of, there wasn't a board previously to that, which is, is quite bizarre. Uh, but a board being appointed, there were very clear delegated, defined roles, responsibilities and what I had, what I must bring to the board. Mm-hmm. Any initiatives that the... We're, we're going outside of our core competence. Uh, and Sarah was just touching on it there, but it wasn't your core competence. Why are we getting involved in it? You should bring it through a process for approval. Uh, so, you know, they are the basic ones. They're not just for bigger organisations, they're for smaller ones. And so, yeah, now I would have been held quite, quite rightly uh, throughout COVID uh, to account by the Audit and Risk Committee to the board. Uh, so I, I don't think it's a, just because it's a public organisation that's it's disregarded, um, obviously, there's a failure in this instance. In terms of the sponsorship money there and the movement of, of money around the books, um, it is important to note, and they make it clear in this report, look, there was no monetary gain um, for RTE here, but it isn't in line with accounting practices. Why is that important? 
Yeah, and again, that's another one of the core tenets of a control framework that you have your accounting practices right, you know, not just your risk practices, but you account and you define for it. So I, I can't comment as to how I, I saw the reference to how it was accounted for or not accounted for, but that seemed like one of the basic elements of the spend items. They're, category, they're correctly categorised, they're correctly reported on, uh, and it seemed to fail. It's extremely poor practice, isn't it? Well, I'd be really anxious to see what Neve and I know the chair today, and indeed the CEO, have said the immediate changes that they have made, and they've listed them in their statements, and they look like good, stronger processes, I, I would acknowledge. Uh, and it would be really interesting to see what uh, Neve Brennan and the team come back with now around the whole cultural frame, uh, sorry, control framework and governance framework, because it would be concerning on today's reporting. But again, I think the chair and the CEO have acknowledged uh, changes that they've put in place. Um, Shuni Raleigh, speaking of the chair today, um, she's released a statement this evening, um, Brian Stanley, saying that the board of RTE, and it's worth pointing out that five <coughs> of the members of the current board were on the board that was in situ when decisions around the musical um, took place. They are happy to come in front of your committee. What questions will you have for them? Well, I think there's a number of questions. I mean, along with the, the failure of corporate governance uh, in terms of the executive team, which is the senior staff, which is a complete failure there, uh, and some of the issues that uh, that Paul and Sarah have uh, mentioned there. The board itself, you know, the Supreme Oversight Authority is actually the, the appointed board. And a board should be inquisitive, uh, a board should be inquiring, uh, a board should be assertive, and, you know, the, the board should set out clear ground rules for the executives, because the executives are answerable, and Paul will, you know, have experience of this, and anybody who sat in the board uh, the executives are, are, are accountable to the board. And in this case, you know, the board did know a certain amount. It was flagged up with the board. Uh, with and certain can, members of the board. Yeah, and you can, see in the, you can see in the report that there are, you know, you can see there in it where there was certain members of the board. But, I mean, there was a response from three of them, and one of them said, I don't remember any discussion. This is what told Grant Thornton. Uh, another attendee said, I don't remember any discussion around this. Uh, another one went on to say that it wasn't on the agenda for a specific discussion. It was just, it was an informative, or it wasn't informative that mm. the DG just gave a bit of a verbal report. Another one went on to say that it wasn't on the agenda. There was no paperwork. This is the first time I heard of the Time Musical. Uh, I had no information about it. I hadn't seen anything. That's what they told Grant Thornton. But I would say there's responsibility on the board to do that. While it's clear, I mean, this isn't, we didn't have to wait for this to come to see that it was a failure uh, between the executives and the board at RT and a complete breakdown. And, you know, I would have had a feeling that the board wasn't assertive enough and wasn't inquiring enough. But what this does today, it shows up a complete lackadaisy attitude in terms of oversight and ensuring that the executives are held to account. That clearly wasn't there. So the, to the point being made by Catherine Murphy and indeed by Alan Dillon from Finnegale, who's on both of your committees, he was saying today that you know, the positions of those who were on the board then, who are still on the board, they're not tenable. Catherine Murphy said they need to, you know, take a look at themselves in the mirror and ask, are they the right person and people to be serving on the current board? Do you agree with him, Christopher? Um, to an extent, but I, I don't think it's the right time for, for that question to be asked. I think it's really important uh, that those members who did serve on the board, uh, the old board, uh, come into the Public Accounts Committee, they come into the Media Committee as well. Uh, and we asked these, these basic questions about what type of governance procedures were in place 
Um, it's not just corporate governance that was missing here. It's the very most basic due diligence that, that, that was missing. And it all comes back to the culture. And you ask a very, you, a very I, I think, um, relevant question there in that would this have happened um, with private money, uh, the way it's happening with public money? And I think, unfortunately, um, the, the, the answer is it, it wouldn't. Um, in, I, I think there, this culture of, you know, uh, we can pretty much get away what, what we want or we can pretty much do what we want um, was within RT because it was public money. Well, it's um, interesting to hear even Paul saying that within the HSE until 2019, there was no separate boards. There was no sort of external oversight until that point. Yeah, so this this culture of we can do what we want kind of festered within, uh, first of all, management. And then that, I think, uh, filtered into the to the oversight board as well. And it was, I think they were all uh, of that same attitude that, look, let's give this a go and, and we won't ask questions. And, you know, the, the biggest example I, I could give, I guess, kind of as, as a parallel would be if someone within Virgin Media, which obviously is, is private, floated the idea of Love Island, the musical. And, you know, I, I jest there, I'm sure it'd be a raging success. But um, <laughs> the, the, the the point is, is that you know, if you were forecasting ninety thousand ticket sales, if you were if you were saying that we're going to run 35, 40 sellout shows, um, the CEO would come back and ask the question, okay. I like the idea, but you're going to have to provide evidence. Uh, you know, everything what is What are you risk. basing this on? There was no on? evidence whatsoever. There was no questions asked. There was no, just the most basic due diligence. There and seems so, to have been so they do, they have an assumption that because the Late Late Toy Show itself is such a phenomenon in the country that the ticket sales would just fly off the shelf. There was just no need to even ask or test what those ticket sales would be like. People would just would flock to the musical. But the, it, 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 the, the kind of warning signs must have come early because I was actually in a taxi earlier today and the taxi driver, you know, was 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 complaining about the, the re- repetition of the ad for the toy show, the musical. It was on multiple times every day on RT. That was a clear sign that they were struggling to sell tickets and the plug should have been pulled there and then when it was clear that this wasn't going to be a success. And amazingly, from what I can gather, there was more concern about the... The, the damage to the reputation of this amazing institution, the toy show, or then the concern of the lot, loss to the, the, the licence fee payer. Um, what about the fact that all the names within this report have been redacted and there is also reference to the report that the uh, former CEO, D Forbes, was furnished with a draft of this report but hasn't responded and wasn't able to cooperate with um, Grant Thornton because of ongoing health issues. Um, is it disappointing that we don't have individual accountability and responsibility here and disappointing that um, we aren't able to speak to D Forbes at this point? It is because it also kind of, I suppose, it doesn't bode well for us in, in our work in the committee and PAC and in, in the media about how forthcoming people will be with information. Obviously, there's a, a reason for redaction, um, possibly that people will be more forthcoming in terms of comments within a committee meetings. So it is disappointing, but hopefully we can tease some of that out with the board members that will come in. I, by the way, I think it's really important that we get former board members in as well. We had the former chair um, of the board of RT came in when we had the payment scandal last summer. Um, she was quite willing to do it then. I'm, I'm sure... That was Moya Doherty, Moya the former chair. I'm, I'm sure she'd be willing to to do the same because obviously this is far more relevant to her work as, as chair of the the, account, the um, uh, committee. Um, when do you hope um, to bring these individuals before the Public Accounts Committee, Brian Stanley? ASAP. Um, the, the Public Accounts Committee, because we're dealing with the finances at RT and its commercial semi-state, we have sought uh, an extension of our powers for remit because we did get that, the remit of the committee, up to the 31st of December. Um, you know, the letter from Shona Ratlig, uh, which I just caught there on the way in off your assistant, uh, that would indicate that, you know, they're, they're willing to come, uh, you know, as soon as possible, at least to board members. But I think, I think what's important is that... And then uh, in terms of former board members and indeed absolutely, the former chair? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I've I done a bit of uh, looking at this today in terms of who was there at the time and 
you know, who's there now. And uh, the same with the executive team. While a lot of them are off the pitch, uh, you know, it should be asked. And in relation to... And if in, they refuse to come, um, Brian Stanley, if they refuse well, to appear before the committee because they are no longer we can, on we can, the board. We can seek powers of compatibility. The Public Accounts Committee can, um, you know, and if people want to go to the court to challenge that, they can do that. That option is there. You know, in relation to, to Dee Forbes, it's disappointing because, you know, we we, uh, we wrote to her, on the last occasion we wrote to her, uh, we wrote to her solicitor, we got a response back from the solicitor saying that not alone was she not in a, in a position to participate in, in a hearing, to come to a hearing either physically or, you know, by Zoom or on Teams, uh, but she wasn't also in a position to actually engage in terms of even correspondence. But I think, I think here what's important with this is that, you know, the, the risks were identified, but, uh, you know, and Grant Thornton highlighted this, by RTE, some of the risks were, mm. but there was no attention paid to them. And on the figures of the ticket sales, I mean, the, uh, the breakdown of that is a phenomenal because mm. they would have actually had, they would have actually had, in, on the basis of having just 35 shows, they would have had to have over 100% attendance they would have had to have people standing in the aisles to break even. It would have you had know, to be an absolute knockout. Well, that's it. So, I mean, they needed, they needed to have 54 shows. Okay. And they needed to have full houses to make any kind of a, any sign of a real profit. Uh, in terms of sort of where we go from here, Sarah, it's worth noting there are other reports due from RTE and some very, very important issues, possibly over the next couple of weeks. Yes, of course. So Shuni Raleigh was on News at One, as we've established, and she basically said that there are two seismic reports to come, um, the culture and governance report, and then a report into kind of HR and risk in RTE. Um, she said they should be with the committees or elephant committees in the next week or two. So um, hopefully they will bring more answers. But yeah, moving forward, you know, like it, it's... As Brian said, you know, the committees can only really do so much to compel people. You know, if whether there's public outcry and scalps are being called for, that's a whole other issue because the process of making someone resign from a board such as Ortiz um, Oversight Board is extensive. It has to go through both houses of the Oireachtas. So but the Taoiseach did refer to that possibility today, didn't he, which was noteworthy? He, he did, of course, yeah. No, he did. Um, whether anything happens, you know, I mean, a scalp's already been claimed, Rory Coveney who was ultimately responsible for Toy Show the Musical, um, he exited the organisation over the summer. So, you know, technically someone has lost their job over this, um, but whether or not more action will be taken remains to be seen. All right, look, we're going to leave that conversation uh, there for now. My thanks to Christopher Sullivan, to Brian Stanley and to Sarah McGuinness. Up next, should Ireland decriminalise the possession of drugs for personal use? We debate. You're very welcome back. Well, the Citizens' Assembly on Drug Use released its final report today, consisting of 36 different recommendations on charges and changes to Irish drug policy. Chief amongst them was that possession of drugs be met with a health response as opposed to a criminal one. Well, Chair of Citizens' Assembly on Drug Use, Paul Reid, has stayed with me to discuss this and is also joined by... GP, Dr. Austin O'Carroll, and down the line is News Talk Breakfast presenter Shane Coleman. You're all uh, very welcome to the programme. But before we delve into this, a reminder first, our nightly live interactive poll allows you to have your say. And tonight we are asking, do you agree with the Citizens' Assembly? Should the possession of drugs 
for personal use in Ireland be decriminalised. You can vote online on virginmediatelevision.ie forward slash vote or follow the QR code on screen and we'll bring you the poll results a little later in this section. So to start with you first, Paul, the Assembly recognises that when it comes to drug use in Ireland, there's a spectrum here, isn't there? Bring us through what that spectrum is. Yeah, there's a spectrum of people who use drugs and it can range from... You know, one end, people who may get some benefit, uh, maybe medical benefit. Uh, secondly, to people who may use them and are non-problematic, don't have a problem. Uh, thirdly, then, to people who can develop a chronic dependence. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. And then finally, people who develop addiction. So that's different type people use different drugs with different kinds of outcomes. Yeah, it's been the experience and, and pre- that was presented as a model to us in the Assembly during the process as well. Okay, so the recommendations that you've brought forward today, is this about changing the environment around general drug use or drug addiction? Yeah, no, it's, it's around changing it at a population level, right? So general drug use. We were tasked to see how can we reduce the harm caused by drugs? And there's many different kinds of harm. Uh, some of it can be criminal, some can be intimidation, families, communities, etc. Uh, but some of it is particularly on the individual, and some of it is specifically on marginalised uh, communities. Communities that suffer high social deprivation suffer most. So from our perspective, we were looking at the whole spectrum of people. The specific recommendations that we were, we were asked to look at legislation, policy and services. So while quite understandably, the recommendation that's got understandable uh, attention today has been the issue of deregulation. It has to be seen in the context of the 36 recommendations that we made across the board. Okay. Um, You don't quantify, do you, within this report, um, uh, uh, the amount that you would consider personal use? If a person's found with a certain amount of drugs, um, they won't have a criminal conviction off the back of it, but you don't quantify what that amount is. Why? Well, we went through in quite detail at the Assembly. and, And first of all, the rationale for us making that recommendation was that uh, we asked Assembly members, would they be happy to stick with the status quo? And they overwhelmingly said no, because we know drugs are pervasive all across the country and it's increasing use of drugs all across the country. And we know some communities are hurting more than others. Um, so specifically, we, we know it's across the board. And, you know, our, 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 our lens and our focus was see how can we reduce that harm. The levels of quantity, from our perspective, recommendation is decriminalise personal possession of all types of drugs and we didn't specify what that level of possession might be or maybe the number of times that you're caught with drugs and possession. We felt that that's better now for the Oireachtas, the, the elected members now, to look at that and understand, get advice from the Attorney General uh, and make a judgment call what that level of quantity would be and maybe the number of times. 
And it may be a case, a person, we, we recommend route to a health system and maybe a doctor might decide at another point in time if a person is relentlessly a, a problematic, not engaging with the system, they may decide, you know, there's another avenue as well. Is consumption of drugs in Ireland still illegal? Well, certainly from our perspective, we do, did not make any recommendation on legalising. Our report does not say legalising drugs. It, it, you know, it, it doesn't. Uh, it, it's aligned very much with the Portuguese model. So apart from just decriminalising for personal possession, there's a strong emphasis and focus on our health-led approach, which is around diversion and dissuasion. So catching people at an early point in the system rather than rooting them through a criminal justice system. But the people, I suppose, who are likely to be rooted through the criminal justice system are people with addiction to drugs. That'll be fair? Well, there's many convictions now for people with personal possession as well. Uh, and certainly, Gareth O'Connor would have presented to us and demonstrated they do show a level of discretion uh, when they're, if they carry out a search and somebody's in small possession. But we wanted it to be clearer. We didn't want it to be ambiguous. We wanted it to be very clear about what the law is, what the legislation says about personal possession. Uh, and the reason we're going for that model, in very simple terms, the current model ends up with a lot of people in a very vicious cycle. Many people who presented to us who've used drugs, they used them because in an early life situation, they suffered some trauma, early life mm -hmm. trauma. Then they start to use drugs to try to numb that trauma. Then they got addicted to drugs. Then they, open a, they end up in a criminal conviction. Then they may end up in prison. It's an awful vicious cycle as it currently stands. So we punishment to deal with addiction, you're saying, isn't the answer. It must be a health letter. Approach. A health led, a more humane approach, more humane, you know, the stigma and marginalisation that goes on related to some uh, elements of drug users and some families and some individuals and some communities has to be broken. If we really want to have a different kind of society, we have to take a different approach. You know, and if you, if you look at it, I think there's almost 5,000 people in prisons here in Ireland. 70% of those prisoners mm. are suffering with some level of addiction. Um, so do it's you... Real, it's a real issue. Do you expect if the changes that you recommend are adopted, there will be an increase or a decrease in general drug use? And I'm talking right across the spectrum here. Well, what we would be targeting was reduced harm. You know, we say in our report... There's so another harm, not use. Reduced harm. Reduced harm from drugs is what we see. We can't predict, you know, is it more use or less use? There's, it's early days even in terms of the Portuguese model. Do you not think it was important to analyse that? We, well, we did. We looked at what's been the, the evidence across other uh, jurisdictions. We looked at Canada, we looked at the US, we looked at uh, all the European models and what way they've gone. It is early days in terms of weather, mm. but one of the key measures will be reduced deaths, we believe, because, you know, during the seven months of our assembly process, several hundred people will have drugged, uh, would have died from drug-related issues. You know, so we have to break this cycle. OK, let me just bring in Shane Coleman because, Shane, you voiced concerns on your programme on News Talk Breakfast this morning. You think that when it comes to general drug use that perhaps a bit of stigma is actually not a bad thing. Why? Yeah, well, look, I, I, I don't absolutely... I, I agree with an awful lot of what Paul said there. And I'm not here to argue for the war against drugs and I absolutely accept that that didn't work and I think we do need to be open to change. But I thought you asked an absolutely brilliant question at the very start, Kira, when you said, is this about tackling addiction or is this about tackling general drug use? And I think in terms of tackling addiction, I can absolutely see the merits of what's being proposed. And I know you're going to be talking to Austin in a minute, and I'm sure he'll have a lot to say about this, because I know he does brilliant work 
uh, in the inner city with people whose lives have been absolutely scarred by addiction. And I don't disagree with Paul's uh, analysis that a lot of these people are you know, where trauma has led to to, to the life that uh, that uh, that they've or the, the path that they've gone down. So I don't disagree with any of that. Where I worry about is the impact on general society, and I I love the idea of stigma being taken away, but I worry that when you take away a taboo, that it becomes normalised and it becomes a lot more acceptable. I'm not naive. We have a huge drug problem in this country. Uh, drug use is everywhere. It's in every parish in the country. I know that. But I think we have to, and you touched on this with your, with your, with your subsequent question, we have to ask yourself, will this result in fewer harmful drugs being taken by fewer people? And I think the jury is massively out on that at the moment. I think a, a lot of people talk about Portugal, and absolutely, a lot of the statistics that are quoted make Portugal look very impressive indeed. But there is some evidence in recent years of a shift again in, in, in Portugal. There, it's a very different country to Ireland. Uh, they've got much, I mean, they've much more liberalised drink laws, for example. You can buy beer from a vending machine there. You don't see people there stumbling around the place drunk. It, it's a very different uh, country. Their experience with... Uh, the explosion in drug use came after the fall of the fascist regime. I, I'm I'm kind of nervous about comparing across countries, but I'm more importantly I'm nervous about where this will lead us. And, and just a final point, uh, I heard Paul saying earlier that he hopes the government moves really quickly on this. I'm nervous about moving quickly. I, I think we should proceed carefully and with caution because one thing I'm absolutely sure of. The genie cannot be put back in the bottle if we make these decisions. And when it comes to what we'll call, let's say, regular drug use, we're talking about people at a festival or people who go out on a Saturday night. Do you think, as it stands, Shane, that the criminalisation, the chance that you might get some sort of a conviction if you were found with cocaine in your pocket, that it acted as a deterrent? Yeah, clearly not enough of a deterrent. Mm. <laughs> uh, again, I, I'm not naive. Drug use is everywhere. It's it's absolutely rampant. But I suppose my worry is, and, and I'm open to persuasion on this, I, I'm not taking a hard and fast view, but my worry is that if that taboo is gone, if that fear of being prosecuted, of being of being caught by the law, of being, I suppose, embarrassed in public if you know if you are charged, I think if that fear goes does it just become even more routine? Does it become much more widespread, even more widespread than it is today? And I'm, I'm yet to be convinced um, th that it won't. And one other point I would note, I mean, I was kind of shocked when I saw the Citizens' Assembly. It was only one vote that, that prevented the Citizens' Assembly uh, recommending the legalization of cannabis. Uh, that for me, absolutely okay. would be a, a step too far. Okay, let me put that to Austin. There will be some concern that this is, you know, the slippery slope, the thin edge of the wedge. We go for our, you know, decriminalisation. Next step is legalisation of cannabis and on we go. I have a book at home. It's a book of illogical arguments and it quotes the slippery slope as the most illogical argument. We heard it during the divorce referendum. We heard it during the abortion referendum and it didn't come to pass. They said people were all going to get divorced and the site was going to fall apart. It doesn't happen. Can I come back to the issue about you're talking about, you know, will people start using drugs? 
When it comes to alcohol, most people drink alcohol and it's fine. So we don't worry about most people drinking alcohol. What we want to stop is the people who drink alcohol harmfully. So, so we shouldn't worry about people who are taking drugs recreationally? I'm not saying we should legalise it. I'm not saying we shouldn't watch it. What I'm saying is what you really want to stop is the harm. People get moral about addiction. I'm addicted to exercise. I don't mind. Addiction can be good things on occasions. It's the harm that you want to stop with addiction. Now, in terms of harm, Absolutely, I'm not saying we should legalise all the party drugs, the LSD, the cannabis. I will say, though, you go to Electric Picnic, which I've gone to, you go talk to anyone who's got kids over 15, talk to your kids. There's lots of people using these soft drugs and they're not coming to harm, but they need to watch them. And I'm not saying we should legalise it. I think we should still deter it. Oh, just to be clear, you're saying, look, this is about harm and you believe yes. that this will reduce the harm that causes drugs. The question, I suppose, being brought from Shane there is we may have less addiction, but will we have more drug users? Is that just a consequence that we have to accept if we want to deal with the harm of this? I'm saying is I don't think we'll have more drug use. I think there's loads of people using drugs as there is. And I think is the present situation hasn't addressed that. So if you're saying that the present situation is preventing drug use, talk to young people. Lots of people are using drugs. And we're by getting into this discussion, what the important discussion is, the, the actual health-led approach is about the harmful effects of drugs. And when we're talking about that, it's mainly related to crack cocaine and to heroin and not the softer drugs. OK, Shane, just let you back in on that. Yeah, look, uh, Austin's right. Um, the, the current approach is clearly not working. And I, I do think it's important we, we, uh, we tease out alternatives. Uh, and look, the health-led approach, I see, I see the merits in it. But I, I, I did read an interview with the the, the, the czar of the Portuguese, the, the man who came up with the Portuguese system uh, 20 years ago. He actually made the point that liberalization of drug laws was not a silver bullet and that it was really important that more important that the services are there to help people. I would make the point, one thing we're not particularly good at in this country is providing uh, public services. And I, I do worry about this emphasis on a health-led approach. Will we be able to deliver on a health-led approach? OK, Paul Reid, you're the person to answer that. As a former head of the HSC, you're saying keep them out of jail. That's not the answer. Send them towards the health system. Now, how can you have confidence that that, that will work? Yeah, and that's a discussion we did have today with the Minister as well, and as part of the report that resources across the various regions in the country in the health service need to be put in place there to support uh, this process. Now, the accessibility at the moment to addiction services is, is not too bad. Actually, it's quite people can get access to different parts of the country where it can happen. But I think the debate should hold itself. We did not recommend a Portuguese model. We recommended what I've been calling an Irish model for the Irish context. Uh, and yes, the other 35 recommendations talk about the supports to be put mm. in behind this model. But I go back to something I, I think was Shane said earlier on. Our Assembly members expressed some of the same concerns that mm. Shane articulated there. And this is not a binary issue, right? This is a very complex issue. And I, I believe we've given this the greatest level of deliberation and discussion that's ever happened in this state. So when I say a sense of urgency, I really mean for the political system now to pick this up, to be ambitious, to be brave, to be progressive okay. and do something different. Uh, Austin, you have worked in the area of yeah. substance abuse for a very long time. Would you have confidence that if that we will, I suppose, tie the decriminalisation here with the resources that are be necessary to tackle the harm? 
And um, first of all, just to say, Shane, I, I obviously hear Shane, but the SAR wasn't, the guy in Portugal wasn't saying he, that legalisation wasn't working. He was just saying you need more than yes. legalisation. And that's the point. So my clients, just to clarify why I think people get addicted to drugs, because I think this is important. If I go, I talk to medical students, I'll have 130 medical students, and I'll ask, how many of you use heroin? You might know someone who used heroin. Might six people might know someone. Many of you know someone who's died of heroin. One person might say yes. You walk into a primary school in inner city Dublin, they'll all know someone who, who uses heroin and who's died of heroin, because it's a problem of poverty. Poverty causes trauma, and then when the people traumatised, they come out with this huge, you know, they, they're in, where they've come back from terrible backgrounds, and then when they grow up, they use drugs to self-medicate. That's how they cope with trauma. So we co-create poverty, so it is our duty to respond. And it has been shown that by, by, by a health-led approach, it decreases death from drug use. It decreases it dramatically. Portugal has six deaths per million okay. compared to 24 per million for the EU. It reduces HIV spread. 104 deaths per million went down to four deaths per million. It reduces use of problem drugs. Okay. It less, less criminalisation. Much more people connect with families and they're able to reconnect in society. It's a humane response. It's the right response. All right. Uh, to our nightly interactive poll, and um, we asked... Did you agree? Should the possession of drugs for personal use be decriminalised? And the result of a poll was 69% of you agreed, 31% no. So it seems that many of you are on the side of the Citizens' Assembly. My thanks um, to you, Dr. and to you, uh, Paul Reid. Just to let you know, you can contact Helplines, as always, on virginmediatelevision.ae forward slash helplines. We'll uh, leave it there after the break. Uh, we are going to go to the heart of Gaza after another day of conflict in the Middle East. Do stay with us. You are very welcome back. Well, the Hamas-run health ministry has reported that at least 20 people were killed and as many as 150 injured after shelling in an area near Gaza City today. Meanwhile, the UN has reported that a dozen people were killed after one of its shelters in Khan Yunus was hit. Well, earlier, Jonathan Critch, uh, Chief of Communications for UNICEF Palestine, spoke with the Tonight Show team and started by explaining the reality of life in the Gaza Strip, where he is based at the minute. Since I arrived in the Gaza Strip, I have seen uh, mostly despair and devastation, actually. Uh, wherever you look, you see hundreds, thousands of tents everywhere, on the sidewalks, uh, in the fields, uh, in all, even on roundabouts, you, you, have, you have makeshift tents. What, what uh, uh, we know is that the reported figures of civil, civilian casualties is 25,000, 25, 26,000. Uh, we also know that reportedly 70% of them are women and children. Um, but what I want to say is that, you know, beyond the figures, uh, we, we, are, we are talking about the lives of, of, of children, uh, many of them were very young, uh, sometimes babies, and, and this is the reason why uh, we are calling consistently for a long-lasting ceasefire. This is the only way to protect those children uh, uh, and, and, to, and to be able to support them with food, with water, with medical supplies that we are bringing in uh, uh, in very, very difficult conditions. The, the reality of the Gaza Strip is that uh, uh, 
almost two thirds of the hospitals are not functioning or not functioning properly. Uh, the direct consequence of that is that the hospitals which are still functioning in a way or the other are completely overcrowded. Uh, they are at 200, 300, sometimes more percent of their capacity. And so what we see is, you know, children in, in waiting in corridors and, and, and not receiving the, the, the proper treatment that they are entitled to. Uh, and that's also one of the reasons why UNICEF is, is really prioritizing when it comes to medical supplies, prioritizing the ones which are delivered in the surgery room to be able to, you know, save lives, save the lives of, of the children who are injured in those, in those surgery rooms. Well, I'm also joined live by foreign correspondent Hannah McCarthy, who's in Jenin in the West Bank for us this evening. Hannah, thank you for um, joining us on the programme. Such awful descriptions there of the suffering of children in Gaza and reports today of intense fighting in Khan Yunus around two of the hospitals that perhaps are treating some of those who have been injured. Um, what is happening there? Well, you know, we've been getting reports from doctors who say they've run out of uh, anaesthetics, they've run out of uh, medicine, they are trying to keep people alive, you know, by using the light on their phone. Again, this is descriptions that we've heard, you know, from other hospitals elsewhere. This is not the first time we've heard these descriptions. Uh, but again, this is the first time it's come uh, on this scale to Khan Yunus, which is a city that many people in the north have already uh, fled. Um, and again, Gaza is simply running out of hospitals. It's running out of medical facilities and it's running out of space for people to live uh, in any sort of, you know, kind of civilised uh, um, conditions. Um, so again, this is just, you know, we kind of thought things couldn't get worse uh, maybe last year towards you know, December. But you know, this month has shown us that things can get a lot, lot worse. Anna, you are in the West Bank and there have been ongoing reports of growing tensions on the West Bank. What have you been witnessing? Uh, well, this morning I was at a refugee camp uh, in Janine uh, that had seen, you know, kind of, you know, heavy clashes last night between the Israeli uh, for, Israeli forces and Palestinian militants there. Uh, there was no deaths, but several people were arrested. But, you know, when I got to the camp this morning, uh, the roads were completely destroyed. There was school children kind of, you know, walking over rubble, trying to get to school. There was elderly people, you know, with walking sticks, uh, just trying to get home. Uh, there was no electricity, you know, there was flooding uh, in parts of these, you know, already quite poor neighbourhoods. Uh, so the destruction we're seeing in the West Bank is not on the scale of, you know, Gaza, where, you know, we're obviously seeing, you know, huge bombardments. Uh, but it is, you know, devastating for the local communities in the West Bank who say, you know, they feel they're, you know, being, efforts are being made uh, to make it uninhabitable for them, to force them out. Uh, and we are seeing huge numbers of people being displaced in the West Bank as well. Um, in terms of the ICJ, we expect that they will have an interim verdict tomorrow on the case taken by South Africa against Israel. What are the possible scenarios there, Hannah? Uh, well, it's possible that they, they reject the jurisdiction uh, for the case and they say we can't actually you know, consider this. Uh, they could also you know, uh, accept some of the measures that South Africa has proposed. They could uh, decide to formulate their own measures as well. Um, so, you know, there's a couple of different possibilities there. Uh, 
the kind of, I guess, the most important measure that's being uh, asked for by South Africa is a suspension of military operations in Gaza. And the second most important one would be uh, that Israel would be required to effectively allow aid get into Gaza. Uh, what we're hearing from Israel is that they're saying they're allowing aid to get in, but on the ground, that is just not happening. Uh, the UN vehicles trying to deliver aid up to the northern Gaza have been shot at. Um, Gazans queuing for aid have been shot at. Uh, it's clear that you know aid is not being delivered in the quantities and in a safe way uh, to people in Gaza. So I think there's a view that the ICJ produce a measure that would require Israel to suspend its military operations, but the other measures you may well be considered. Okay, we'll have to leave it there. Hannah McCarthy, thank you uh, for joining us. That is it from us here tonight, folks, from all of the late team here. Good night to you all at home and do take care. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.